Welcome to the very first episode of the Clare Valley Podcast, brought to you by the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. This podcast is a great platform to keep you informed about the latest council news and issues, upcoming projects and community events happening in the area. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. Today, we'll head to the Clare Show. While so many country shows were cancelled due to COVID this year, the local show committees pulled out all the stops to ensure the show goes on. To have it on this year, you know, my my girls and my son are so happy, um, you know, which is close to my heart as well. And rates. We all pay them, but do you know much about them and why you pay what you pay? We'll find out more as there's a rate review underway. But first, let's meet the Chief Executive Officer of the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council, Dr Helen MacDonald, to hear about the latest council projects that may affect you. We kicked off our chat with some good news for the sporting community of Clare. Last week, uh, we were informed, or everybody was informed, that the Clare Sport Club had been successful with their Building Better Regions application, and they have received uh, $2.5 million from the federal government towards the building of the upgrade of the Oval and the building of the new club rooms. And that $2.5 million will go together with the $1.8, $1.9 million from council and um, funding from the state government um, which is just under a million dollars plus plus they have uh, fundraising they have to do themselves so five hundred thousand dollars they have to raise Uh, yes and uh, look it's absolutely fantastic completely unexpected but it is terrific that the the Clare community and the two football clubs and the netball clubs are going to have this great new facility so it's fantastic why was it unexpected um, well, we'd had murmurings um, from our uh, local MP who had indicated that uh, given the floods and fires in the eastern states that there could be a good chance that we would not be or they would not be successful with their application. It's highly competitive and it was a large amount of money, but... I don't know, we got over the line, so <laughs> we're that's not going fantastic. to complain. That's a, no, that's a great outcome. Oh, congratulations um, to all those people that really worked hard to get it across the line too. Now, moving on to the Clare and Riverton town halls, there's been quite a lot of work or a, a lot of work is about to be undertaken on those halls. What's the update? So last night, Council was presented with a report, um, which was based on uh, consultation with the broader community undertaken by an external consultant. So they looked um, at both those halls and what's the opportunity to reinvigorate them and increase their utilisation. Um, I think council is of the the view that both are important facilities that need to remain for the community, but it also is it's quite clear that the facilities are uh, a little bit dated um, and need some investment and also Obviously, we'd love to see them used more than they currently are. So the report contained a number of options for each of the hall, ranging from do nothing to a sort of a, an interim step. Um, and then for the Claretown Hall, there was um, a pretty uh, adventurous plan, um, of option three it was called, which was putting in office space and all sorts of things. A um, culture and innovation hub, I yeah. think it was <laughs> yes. described as, which sounds kind of exciting. Yeah, it does, although I'm not sure sure that uh, all the elected members were 
all that excited but <laughs> with with some of the ideas, um, at least in terms of a, a f- first step. So what council did last night was they um, noted the report. So basically they received the report and, and, and then from there they made two resolutions which were essentially for administration to just get a costing of what it would be if we had an architect to come in and do the design for the upgrade so that we could do the costing. So essentially the same exercise for, for both towns halls which is okay if we're going to do some just fix up things like acoustics make uh, some of the toilets um, more user-friendly connective space uh, between sites things like that you know move them from the 1950s 60s into the modern day so what would that take so that's essentially uh, what administration has to do is just work out what that's going to cost us to have that work done so that's uh, council can make a decision do they want to invest in that this year um, and get those design that design work and costing done or do we wait and do it in future years so if you know if it's only going to cost us twenty thousand dollars to get an architect to come in and do or get some costing uh, costings for some designs maybe thirty thousand then it might be something they decide to do this year because it's outside of our original budget or if it's significantly more than that, they might say, oh, okay, we need to, this needs to be part of the formal budget. If anybody wants to actually see the proposed plans for any of these three options or two options, they can get it on the website. Moving to Manura, and there's plans to put in an underground power line. So what's, what's the issue there and why is that happening? Well, that's been an issue for uh, the Manura Institute for a very long time. The Institute is actually a state heritage uh, listed building and for reasons that one does not understand. But anyway, when the power line was put in, which I think was probably in the 60s, it is very, very close to the Manure Town Hall. So every time that council has wanted to do any repairs or work to the facade or the roof, we have to have the power turned off and that costs, I think in the facility of $10,000 to have the power turned off for, um, um, I think it's probably the full day, but anyway, that's just how much it costs. Mm. And and the SA Power came to us, approached us and asked if we were interested in working with their program, which is called PLEC. It's a partnership program that SA Power works with councils and it's usually for street upgrades so to underground power lines but in that part of that process uh, local government usually upgrades main streets and um, beautifies them they don't usually come from um, SA Power but they approached us because it's a state heritage listed building it's not a huge amount of money in terms of what normally gets invested in these plaque projects but they would underground the power line in front of the Manure Town Hall which which means that um, a lot of work that has needed to be done and the institute could could now be done without every time you're thinking about it you have to invest you know ten thousand dollars or so just to have the power turned off Mm. and And all those people that don't have power in the community for that day as well exactly and Mm. that's the whole um uh, township of manure and as one of the elected members pointed out it also means they have no water because they all have to use pressure pumps to have um, water come through their tap so it's a big deal okay so when is that going to take place 
Um, well, it's yet to be confirmed. So we base the council's decision to agree that yes, it's a good thing to do, and they would be pre uh, prepared to contribute um, up to thirty thousand dollars towards that. We can now confirm that with SA Power, and it will then go to the PLEC committee for consideration. So we should know about that in the next um, couple of months, I think. Moving on to local government reform, I understand the legislation um, needs to be changed significantly or the Act needs to be changed. Why is this happening and what difference does this make to the general Clare and Gilbert Valley's community? Well, the Act actually has been changed. So that was um, something that was done earlier this year um, and it's been a process that has been under discussion and negotiation, shall we say, between um, the gov state government and um, the local government um, association representing all of the councils in the state. A and it was in part initiated with the Productivity Commission's review into local government costs, etc., which made some recommendations of things that uh, local government should do, uh, as well as the government's um, ongoing commitment towards rate capping. Now, that didn't happen, so it went to the Productivity Commission, who made some recommendations. That led to then uh, an all-embracing change to the Local Government Act, which deals from all sorts of things, from um, elected member behaviour through to how councils can meet. Historically, councils only met in person, but now we, we can meet um, using electronic means to ESCOs are having oversight of councils' long-term financial planning and strategic planning al alignment. It's really huge um, and it's I think there's a two-year uh, implementation process to that, uh, those changes to the Act and last night was the first decision that council had to make in terms of updating its policies and processes to align with the new Act. So if Betty's listening to this, who lives on Agnes Street, and is hearing us talk about the local government reform and, the, and what that all means, I mean, what does it mean to her? What difference is it going to make to her? That's a good question, but a difficult question. <laughs> How much time have you got, Anna? <laughs> I'm just thinking, what does it mean for me? You know, being just a ratepayer and living in this community, is it just a really big deal for council? Or how does it flow on to the community? Well, it does flow on. Um, there's a lot of money that councils dare I suggest, uh, waste um, or get utilised in dealing with elected member behaviour in terms of either code of conduct issues, which bring in lawyers, uh, etc., which you could say it's an unnecessary cost and utilisation of rate power funds. The other end is, um, for example, having ESCOSA have oversight of council's long-term and strategic plans is to ensure that that councils are planning properly and they're not just throwing things into their budget and increasing their rates without going through a proper consultation process with communities. So, you know, big expenditure items don't just suddenly land in budgets and, and rates go up by, you know, a large amount. So it's, it's part of a process to encourage and ensure there's, you know, good planning and, and uh, fiscal responsibility by councils. And so that communities know and agree that, yes, if they're going to spend $5 million doing something, they're well aware of that and that, that it will ha and how that's going to be paid for over mm. time. So it's making councils more accountable and that councils are justifying why they're spending this amount of money on this rather than just throwing it into the budget. 
Yeah, that's part of it. It's also modernising councils. One of the things that um, has been highlighted through this current pandemic is that councils had to meet in person. This is the matter we dealt with last night. And the only reason that we've been able to meet electronically is because of the emergency regulations that has come into existence because of COVID. Otherwise, we would have had to meet in person. So now, going forward, councils will be legally able to use electronic means for decision-making, shall we say. Mm. And speaking of meeting, you're going to, you've established a meeting plan for next calendar year, I understand? Uh, we have. Um, we do that every year and council looked at that. So uh, the community can uh, um, know when when the me- all the meetings are, when workshops are, etc. But we also try to meet in outside of the Clare Council Chambers and we have scheduled to meet entirely um, in 2022. So that's good good for communities because they can come along to those meetings. There's some big plans ahead for playgrounds, playgrounds in the council area. Playgrounds, mm. park, bike paths or investment in young people, shall we say, uh, which, yes, we've been doing a lot of that. Thank you to the federal government and the money that we've had from drought funding through to additional infrastructure spending as part of recovery from COVID. We just recently opened the Tali Bike Park, BMX Bike Park, which I wasn't there, but understand it was a huge success. Um, even the mayor got on a bike and um, and one of our councillors. But also we've just moving forward with the Claire, Claire Melrose um, Bike Park. So we've been through community consultation with that. So that will be now under construction. And that has the added bonus, I understand, of a little track for the the little ones. So it's not just sort of youth, um, but the little ones that are just starting out will be able to use that. Council, uh, just a little while ago, has, through our grant processes, provided $50,000 to Richardson Park, um, so the upgrade of that great and very popular playground area. At Seven Hill? At Seven Hills, yes. So, you know, lots of things for kids to do, even outside of the show. (laughs) That's fantastic. And, And just going back to the bike park and the Melrose Park playground, both of those projects will be finished by December, I understand? We, that's, our, that's our hope. Yes, that's the aim. That's the aim. Well, that's good news also for the Richardson Park play space as well. It's a very popular playground. I thought this was quite interesting when I was scanning your agenda the other day, that you actually put up all your major project reports as part of uh, the agenda on your website. So if anybody wants to know if there's a toilet being upgraded, a footpath being done or a road being sealed, you can actually access all that information and also a timeline of where it's up to. Yes, that's that's correct. It's our capital projects and a major project. So we um, have a, a, a schedule. Every single thing we're doing throughout the financial year is listed there and um, you can have a look to see when it will start, um, how it's progressing, if it's delayed. Um, so it's just a big, big spreadsheet. It doesn't have huge amounts of detail exactly what's been done. But if you read something in, for example, our annual business plan about what council was doing, and you know, it, you think, well, when are they actually going to do that? They said they were going to do it because not everything gets started on the first of July. You can go and have a look at that spreadsheet. It's always in every uh, council agenda, so the ordinary council agenda. But we'll also put it up on the website so people can don't have to go through the whole process of trying to find an agenda, mm. but to find the the latest 
a schedule of, of Capital Works and where we're up to. I thought the other thing that was quite interesting uh, when I was scanning um, that agenda was you put down every single uh, inquiry or comment that you receive from the public into a table. If people have made a complaint about barking dogs or if they need a tree cut down, everything is noted in that agenda and it's made for public viewing. So that's something that is part of the, the, the process of council? Yes, I don't think we do it every month, but we certainly we very regularly provide council with reports of a whole range of things. Yes, the sorts of complaints that, that we get. There's always a report about the dogs or fire inspections, so which are all standard things that we have to do. But also we record and provide council with an update on our responsiveness to um, work requests and uh, the satisfaction of customers. So, And we actually had a question about that last night, first time ever, I think, since I've been here, from a councillor who asked, you know, it appears that you are only getting average satisfaction levels from how you're dealing with uh, works requests and the answer to that you know yes that's true that's because we have so many works requests and we've got so much other work to do so it's clearly a pressure point for our works crews to be able to respond to that in the timely fashion um, and we're not being as timely as we had in the past we're kind of at a point where a lot of our infrastructure is starting to deteriorate and deteriorating very fast so we're getting a lot of requests for potholes to be fixed or things to be fixed and we've also got because of all the extra money that's been provided by state and federal governments we've got a huge amount of work being undertaken so our poor works crews are really under pressure to get work done. I probably should also mention that because of the amount of money that's in the system our ability to get reasonable pricing for contracted works getting people to put tenders in and timeliness is really under pressure. So I have this expectation that some of the projects that council has committed to is that we may be challenged in delivery, not because of council, but because uh, we just can't get contractors to to do the work or the the cost of doing those works has gone up significantly since we did our original budget. And I know that's not only our council that has that challenge. It's um, I know all councils are experiencing that. And in fact, we shared that with the Attorney General um, when she visited a few weeks ago because of the amount of stimulus that's been put in the economy. It's now coming back to bite us. <laughs> Dr Helen MacDonald, the Chief Executive Officer of the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. Rates, we all pay them, but do you know why you pay what you pay? The council's undertaking a review looking into how it charges council rates to make it simpler, fairer and more equitable for all ratepayers. But in the meantime, it might be handy to understand how rates work and what the review is all about. But first, let's hit the streets of Clare to gauge the general understanding of rates. I think the amount I pay is reasonable considering the services we get. Well, uh, we get our rubbish collected uh, and we have a very good service uh, at the local waste transfer station, which I personally uh, use on a number of occasions. Uh, I'd like to see even more money spent, if possible, on parks and gardens around Clare. I think we're very good at putting land aside for gardens and then 
uh, not perhaps spending enough money on making sure that it's kept up to, sc- up to standard, that's correct. Would you be happy to pay more for rates then if that's the case? I have, uh, I think about five years ago, I wrote a letter to the council suggesting they should put an extra gardener on and if it meant an increase in rates, I'd pay it. Uh, not a lot, other than we pay them once every quarter. Couldn't even tell you how much we pay every quarter, to be honest, because uh, three months down the track I just forgotten how much it was. Honestly, have obviously full faith in, in the local council to, to um, use my rates to, to the most productive and best way they can and something that I'm really ever going to be getting involved in because um, it's a complicated exercise. I think the council do a reasonably good job and I'm only one person. I don't think I can change too much anyway. Uh, Julio? Julio, how much do you know about your rates? Yeah, don't go into that much. As long as they don't put them up too much every year, I'll be all right with that. <laughs> so your rates bill hasn't been going up that much? Uh, no, actually, this year was be less than last year, so which was, was good or better, yeah. Do you know how rates are calculated? Not really, no. <laughs> um, I'd like to know how you go about getting a footpath. That would be good. Uh, some places have footpaths, some don't, so that would be nice, yeah. The one thing for sure I know about the rates is that uh, it's valued on the, it's based on the value of your house and um, my value of my house seems to be going up every year and um, I don't know if I'm, I mean it's great but I'm not sure if I'm that happy with it um, considering the council rates go up too. I would be interested to know uh, what happens with the money and I know you get letters and brochures in from the council to say what their budget is and what they're going to do with it but to be honest my life is too busy to take time out and have a look at that closely. Hi I'm Lisa. There's a review underway um, looking at rates and how the council charges ratepayers. Would it be something that you would be interested in getting involved with? Would you go, would you be involved with public consultations? Would you actually read up on it? Sometimes they're a bit of a talk fest. You go, you spend your time, you say your two cents worth and nothing ever changes. So yeah, (laughs) I've been involved in lots of community consultations in the past and sometimes it's very frustrating. That's just some of the views and opinions from some Clare Valley locals. Well, David Hope is an independent consultant from Skillmar Systems who's consulting council on the rates review process. Firstly, I asked him to strip it back and explain what rates are. So rates are a a major source and, in fact, probably in Australia, the only tax source that local governments have. So councils raise rates to pay for the services that they provide in the community. And how are they calculated? Fundamentally what happens is that the council will set its budget, then it will look to see what it will be getting from other revenue sources, so user charges, uh, and and may also say, well, we're going to do some new capital work, so we're going to borrow for them, which is a very appropriate thing to do, I might add. And then it will say, well, that leaves... X million dollars that we need and that's what we will raise from rates. So that's what the, the rate the rate payers will pay. Council comes up with a budget every year. Yes. And that budget needs to be ticked off by the relevant authority before they they can set the rates. Is that well, right? The relevant authority is the council. The council has to go out for public consultation with its annual plan every year, which includes whatever they're proposing as their budget. 
So the community do get an opportunity to comment on what the council is actually doing and what it plans to do. Um, and also in that, it will include what the rates will be for the following year. So that, again, the community gets an opportunity to uh, comment on what, what uh, the council plans to do. How does the council set the rates? So once they've worked out what they need as, as rate revenue, simplistically, what they do is they say, we need X million dollars. We have Y thousand ratepayers into X million dollars and say we need to raise the, uh, this amount of money. That's looking at it simplistically. Actually, the way it's raised is by taking the capital value, in most cases, certainly in Claire's case, of individual properties, aggregating that and using that to divide into how much is needed and then say, well, each of those properties are based on their capital value has to pay that amount of money in rates. So the more land you have, essentially, the more you'll pay rates. Is that what you're saying in some cases? Fundamentally, yes. But then again, it depends on the valuation of the land. So if you are in the centre of Clare and you have half an acre, say, half a hectare, I should say, no, (laughs) it will be valued at a higher value than half a hectare in Watervale or Seven Hill or Penwortham or in the rural area. Right? So it's, it's not quite that simple, but yes, I mean, if you've got hundreds of, of hectares, yes, you'll be paying a lot more in rates. And that value of that property comes from the Valuer General's office? It does. Okay. Yes, in every case, except for Adelaide City Council, but we're not talking about them. I, I always say to councils, it's good that the Valuer General does your evaluation because when there's an objection, you don't have to deal with it. The Valuer General does. And how often do you find that people do object to their valuation? It's quite low. It's quite low how, how many objections there are. If you, your rates are due, you've noticed there's a big jump in price since the last rates notice or rates bill. What has to determine that jump in price? Well, two things can determine it. One is the council can have increased their rate revenue significantly and therefore made the rate in the dollar much higher. But the other thing is you could have had a change in your valuation. So that could simply be because in your particular area, sales that have gone through have shown that the valuation should be higher. Or you may have had a jump in your valuation because you've added on to your property. You've built, you know, you've built an extra room or whatever. It's not quite simple why, why you might have an increase. And these days... Yeah, councils are relatively modest in their rate increases. Now that financial sustainability has been achieved by most councils, they don't have to keep putting up their rates to get to um, financial sustainability. Do councils ever reduce their rates? Well, <laughs> For example, well, I guess now that you've explained it to me, mm. I can see how they wouldn't, but if, if property valuations have gone down, that doesn't essentially mean your rates are going to go down. No. It all comes down to what the council's budget is. Yes, that's right. Because of COVID, many South Australian councils have actually kept their rates in the dollar the same um, for a couple of years. So you haven't had an increase if your valuation hasn't changed, um, but you haven't had a decrease either. If the council thought its rates were becoming excessive, would councils consider reducing its rates and then reduce its services to the community? Yes, because that's the really the only option they have. And do councils do that? Um, 
Because they can't be all things to all people, no, can they? And no. do you think councils are doing that? They're being all things to all people? I'd like to answer that question by saying what councils will probably do if they have differential rates, and most councils do have differential rates, right? So they will look what at... What do you mean by that? So a differential rate is if you're a residential rate payer, you are probably paying a higher rate in the dollar than a primary producer. Or if you're a commercial or an industrial property, you're probably paying a higher rate in the dollar than residential property, right? So I can give you the example that this year, a council quite close to Clare, Northern uh, Areas Council, actually reduced the differential for commercial and industrial properties because they felt they'd, you know, they were still struggling with the effects of COVID. So technically those properties are paying a little bit less in rates than they would have been last year, depending on what happened with their valuations, of course. Generally, that's what councils will do. They will say, how, how are we sharing rates out among the different categories in our community, residential, commercial, industry, primary production, vacant land... Is, is there a better way to do this? Who's got a greater capacity to pay? And that's one of the principles of taxation, that you have to consider the capacity to pay. And some, part, some sectors of the community do have a greater capacity to pay, so they might be paying a higher rate in the dollar. Going back to whether council... Can councils be all things to all people? Should they start scaling back some services? I'm not talking roads or rubbish collection or the library service, or beautifying the streets. I'm just talking about, you know, putting money towards certain events and things like that. Do you feel that maybe councils, or there's this ongoing concern that maybe councils do too much or are expected to fund too much? Uh, I think there are very high expectations in the community for what councils should be doing. And sometimes people don't realise that what they think the council should be doing, it's not the council's responsibility, it's another level of government's responsibility. That is a, a difficulty and a challenge that councils face. But the, the other challenge is that councils need to, and, and they're actually encouraged, they're encouraged to do strategic planning, well not just encouraged, they're required to do strategic planning uh, under the Act. And they're meant to review what they're doing, they're meant to review their rates, they're meant to... Uh, Think about the Act says that you need to work out what's the burden on future ratepayers of your rate decisions now. But the most important thing councils can do in terms of looking at the services they provide is over time to review them all and see if there's a better way of doing it, which might involve the private sector being involved in actually delivering the service because it's more appropriate and they can do it more cheaply, or it might involve getting volunteers to be involved. There's many ways that councils can can look at their services and say, we can do this better. Is there a certain level of service that council needs to provide that is determined just by them or, do the, or it's determined by another authority? There are certain things that councils have to do that are statutory. In other words, there's, a local there's an act of parliament, and it might be the Local Government Act, that says they have to do things. But most of the things that councils have to do, it's their decision that they, they have to do them or not. Sometimes, though, the, you have the state say to councils, look, we think you should do this and let's go into this together. You contribute a dollar and we'll contribute a dollar and, and we'll provide this service. 
Sadly, what happens is the state stops providing their dollars and, of course, the expectation is in the community that council is going to provide this service and they've got to provide all the funds and not just half of them. You know, so that really it makes council's life very difficult at times. What do rates mainly pay for? Get your long list out. But <laughs> what, what do rates mainly pay for? Okay. I need to be a bit technical here. So we have public goods and private goods, right? So private goods are goods that individuals get, like so they go to the council swimming pool, right? So they pay an entrance fee, right? So that's a user charge that you can make. Public goods are things like roads, street lighting, um, stormwater, and you can't actually uh, allocate that to an individual ratepayer. So they are the things that councils raise rates for, to pay for the public goods that you can't allocate to individual ratepayers. Now, sometimes councils are a bit lazy and they, they could have had a user charge and they haven't made it. And you know, really, they should have user charges wherever they possibly can. I'll give you a better example. Um, Clare Gilbert Valley's Council, they provide community wastewater management systems in Clare, Saddleworth, Riverton, there may be some other places, but they're the principal places that they provide it. That's on a user-pays basis. So they raise a service charge for that. So that doesn't come out of general rates. There's actually a separate charge for that. And that charge must be used just to pay for the community wastewater management system. So general ratepayers are not paying that because not everyone gets that service. Not everyone gets their, their rubbish bin picked up. So there's a separate charge for that. And that's, that's the best way to do it. That's the fairest way to do it. Not to burden ratepayers who shouldn't be paying for something they're not getting. Going back to what you were saying before, where the, how councils can allocate which sectors of the community have to pay more rates, uh, commercial, residential or primary production. How does council determine that burden? Yes, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I wish I could really answer that. Um, the reality is that it's not done very well, right? So so who in the, Clare Val- in the Clare and Gilbert Valleys council area, which sector is getting hit with the burden more so than the others? Um, I guess commercial and industrial ratepayers have the highest rate in the dollar and primary producers have a, quite a low rate in the dollar you know, compared to residential uh, people. So our residential ratepayers. And part of this rate review is to actually be a bit more scientific about how those differentials are calculated, you know, why there should be a differential. The equity principle of taxation is that everyone pays the same rate in the dollar, the same tax rate, and the more income you have, the more tax you pay, but based on the same rate. Property value stands in the place of income in the case of local government taxation. So the more value you have in your property, the more you should be paying in in tax. And it's important to understand that local government rates are a tax. They are not a fee for service. But equity is not the only uh, principle of taxation. You have to take into account capacity to pay, That's why there are provisions for 
seniors and for other people who are suffering hardship to get some relief if they can't pay their rights. And you also have to take into account benefit. So even though it's not fee for service, people should still get benefits from what the council does. I like to say that everything the council does affects the amenity of the whole area of the council. Therefore, everyone who's in the council area is getting a benefit. But that's a very simplistic way to look at it. So the rate review is currently underway and uh, where councils are assessing what you've just mentioned. Mm. But the community gets to have their say. As Absolutely. Well. It's, it's open for consultation yes. at some point at the end of the year or the start of next year, we're not really quite sure, but the community will get to have a say on this. Yes. Well, because the council wants to get more information at the moment, you know, to make sure they, they understand more about the, the economic impact on the whole community, and that's important to know that, <clears throat> it will probably not be until next year that the public consultation occurs. So what will happen is that um, I will prepare a, a report under the Local Government Act that will be available to everyone in the community and then there will be a three-week public consultation period and in that time we will probably have two public meetings um, where people can come along and uh, have their say. And if then you get an overwhelming negative reaction to what the council has proposed as to which sector gets hit with the burden, will you take that under consideration and change the process? My advice to every council I do this for is you have to listen to what your community says and then you have to assess whether what they're saying is valid or not. Um, Have you had an experience where councils have backflipped on their decision because of what the community has said? Yes, nearly every rate review I've done, there would be the the actual final output from the rate review has been changed. Yeah, and it might might only be marginally. Many years ago, I did a rate review for Mount Gambier Council. They, they were making a big change. They were changing from site value to capital value, and when you make that change, everyone gets a change. No one gets the same rates that they got before. There was an issue there. The council wanted to have rate capping so that people would not get too big an increase at once. And they went to the community and said, uh, we, we will have the cap at 25% of what you paid before. And the community sort of wasn't really happy with that. They said, okay, we'll, make it 20, we'll cap it at 20%, not 25%. All right. yeah, that doesn't sound like a lot, but... I need to tell you that when the council put its rates out the next year, they did not get a single complaint. So at least they did something. Yeah, and that's that's what they should do. I mean, that, but they should listen. Sometimes they listen really well. Sometimes, yes, it's not 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 as well. And it's all up to the council members. They're the ones that have to make this decision about who is hit with the burden yes. in this latest review that's yep. going on. So they yep. need to be fully educated on what's on how it all works. And that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and it is a Big challenge. Job. Oh, well, Big it is job. a challenge because you're trying to get people who maybe haven't thought about this at all you know, to understand what in can be quite a complex area. I mean, I, I always say to councils, the starting point should be everyone pays the same rate in a dollar. Right. Now, if you want someone to pay more or less, 
you have to justify it. And in fact, the legislation says you have to justify it without going into the exact what it's, exactly what it says. And very few, possibly zero councils actually do that at all. They don't justify it. No, they are not setting out what they're required to set out as to why they have a differential. They think they're doing it, but they are not doing it. They, they just generally say, we have this deferential and that deferential, but they're not actually explaining why, why it is. The last time Claire did a rate review was 2002. Yes, it's probably due now, uh, if not overdue, uh, because it's something you sh- they should keep under continuous review. And, of course, a lot's happened in the, lo- in the last 19 years. So um, it's good that they're doing a rate review. I think in the case of what Claire are looking at, there may be what we call a structural review where they might actually change you know, the, the whole method, of, of not just the differentials, but instead of imposing a minimum rate, they might use a fixed charge. David, this has been very enlightening. Thank you very much for all your knowledge and to simplify how rates work. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Annabelle. David Hope consultant from Skillmar Systems. There'll be an opportunity for you to comment on the review early next year. Who went to the show? What a day. Beautiful weather, so much to see and do from shearing to show rides, gardening to cakes and crafts, cattle to horses to sheepdogs, and then topping it off with a spectacular fireworks display. So much atmosphere and so much for local families to get involved in. While so many country shows were unfortunately cancelled due to COVID, the show committee was flat out ensuring the show goes on. And I think they were pretty stoked with the outcome, with approximately 3,000 people walking through the gates on Saturday, October the 16th. Here's a taste of the colour and action from this year's Claire Show. White hat and the blue shirt on the oval, on the edge of the oval. Hi, I'm Isabel and I'm 10 years old. I really like Claire Show. It's really fun. I like all the rides and um, the show bags and all the food. Georgia. I like the food and the lollies. I like that they got the slushy machine. Luke Holden ate the rides and the lollies and I got a flake sample bag. Which rides have you been on? I've been on the cyclone. Did you feel sick? No. My name is Willa and I am seven years old. Seven. And what do you like about the Claire show? I liked that singing thing just then with the cow. It was pretty funny. So what else have you liked today? You have got a mountain load of stuff that you're carrying. What have you got there? So I've got like this fidget show bag and I have got, it says girls only and it, this show bag and it's, and it says something hot. I really liked um, doing the clowns and stuff. My name's Bryce and I am 11 years old. Yeah, so far I've had a really good time and I really enjoy like the rides and everything, especially hanging out with my friends. You're about to go in the parade though, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, very big. Yeah, have you done that before? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, and I've also done this personality contest and I came runner up in it, that's why I'm going in the parade. And you won $25? Yeah, a lot of money. Have you spent it all yet? Nope, because my mum took it. <laughs> and then she had to go somewhere, so then I never had the money. Wise woman, wise woman. All right, thank you, Bryce.
Ella va a My name is Dale Callery, I'm the Junior Vice President of the um, Claire Show Committee. So look Annabelle, it's been a great day today and uh, the weather has, has been absolutely perfect and I guess leading up to the day uh, with, the, with the rain and, uh, and whatever which is good for the crops, we're a bit concerned but uh, it's been a crack of a day. How difficult was it to get the Claire Show off the ground this year? Uh, look, very difficult, and uh, and the uh, the committee uh, it was touch and go for for quite some time. So uh, to put a management plan together uh, to make today happen was quite lengthy, and uh, we managed to get it through. So um, at one stage there, the committee um, it, it, look the the show was on hold most definitely, and then uh, then it was proceed with caution, and then we uh, had a called a um, a meeting, and then made a decision to then proceed. So. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it was the right decision, so it was great. Mm. What are you doing differently this year that you're hoping will really turn the corner for the show? Getting young families involved. So they're after five at the Down Under Bar. That's that's something that's close to my heart down there. So um, and uh, so that's after five. So we've got a band and there's food and drink and, and it's going to be a bonfire there as well. So And then, of course, fireworks coming on at eight o'clock. So we'll just get those families, those young families, to get engaged and, and come down to the showgrounds and, and have a good time. So mm. And just one last thing, Dale. I mean, you as a family, you've been coming to the show for how long? Quite a number of years. Uh, um, I guess when I was younger, we used to, to come as well. But look, we, we actually make a day of the show. We're standing here, right here, and behind us, we've got the marquee uh, at our park on the arena and family and friends. And we have friends come from Adelaide. And, and it's a big part of our life. And it's really, uh, you know, our children were so disappointed when the show was cancelled, you know, due to COVID previously. You know, uh, and to have it on this year, you know, my, my girls are, and my son are so happy, uh, you know, which is close to my heart as well. I'm sitting in the ute with Frank Nichols, who's a lifetime member of the Clare Show. So, Frank, how many years do you have to be involved with the show to get that title? Well, I guess uh, when I really started doing sort of some special stuff was uh, not the initial years in the 60s uh, when I was sort of just helping tidy up the yards and and getting the sheep ready for the show. When I became a committee member, uh, probably about 10 years later, and and then I've I've been on the committee for some 40-odd years, I suppose, and uh, and you gradually sort of finish up being the junior vice president and then the vice president and then the president. And so I had six years at that. Then they gave me... (laughs) They gave me this gold medal, uh, and I couldn't find it this morning. So I thought oh, I was annoyed. I it must be, uh, must be somewhere. Anyway, so sixty-five. So we're talking oh, almost sixty years then involved with the show. Yes, yes. I used to come and uh, worked with my uh, for my father-in-law, Sir Richard Hawker, who's um, got his name up on the shearing stand, and and uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful. Wonderful thing to do in a community to be involved, and I hope that I've had a succession planning thing. So I've I've had about seven or eight sort of forty-year-olds suddenly involved, and and which has just made it tick a lot better. And, and it's, uh, you can't be sort of in your seventies and eighties making this go. You need to be a little bit younger. And so, but you're still here. You're still in the shearing shed. You've got your son Sid working the shearers today. So it's obviously followed down the family line. Yes, yes, no, we've uh, spent a few days keeping the sheep, keeping the sheep dry this year. Uh, 
We've had them down at Gawler, then we brought them home and we've classed them and, and crutched them yesterday. And then Earl's Transport, uh, marvellous people have helped cart them up from Gawler and, and then back into the showground today. So half past six we're loading sheep and, and uh, now it's, it's going really well. It's lovely, yeah. How much has the show changed from the 60s to now? Oh, Annabelle, it's just, it's just amazing. You know, I've probably really particularly noticed it now uh, that um, this COVID-19 thing has, has really sort of mucked things up. But over a period of, of the last 20 years, there have been so many more activities uh, in the district and people are a lot more mobile. Um, that suddenly um, bowls start or, or cricket and tennis start and so that sort of eliminates a lot of the, the, that sort of generation. They can, they can travel um, a long way these days, whereas before people would come here and it would be a major picnic ground for the show. There'd be 14, 15, 17,000 people here. It was just, just wonderful. It was standing room only and, and, uh, and families would make it an annual event to have a picnic lunch, a family picnic lunch at the showground. Being 76, Frank, and being involved with the show for so long and seeing all the young people come through the ranks. I mean, are you concerned about the future of country shows or the future of the Clare show in any way, or do you think we've got, we've got the show in good hands? I think the show's in good hands. There's some enthusiastic young, young men and women that are they're here helping. It's probably the event of the year for, for the Clare district, and uh, it's a matter of... Of, of speaking to people and getting them involved and and so many times I've I've said said to people could you help us well no one's ever asked me before you'll be delighted to yeah and and so and away it goes and then uh, there's a couple that live in the town now Mike and Margaret Rogers are just extraordinary the things they do for the show society and the museum as well and they and they're just in their 80s and, and, and they've been here raking leaves and bark and tidying the showground up. You know, that sort of... There's people like that in the town that are probably wondering what they could do to fill in their day. And it's a wonderful... You know, it's very rewarding to go and help somebody else, I think. It's, I, I, uh, I think it's a, a nice way to spend your day and get a smile on someone's face. I'm here with Ryan Wood, who's been on the show committee for four years. Woody, what would you like to see be introduced to the show, especially with your agricultural background as well? I guess from a uh, agricultural background, um, I, I deal with a lot of, I guess, farmers and then uh, they, they've got kids and, and kids like, they like big toys and they like loud things. So I think uh, where I want to uh, probably take it is whether it's motorbikes, whether it's, uh, I was on another show committee down the southeast and they talked around and went, I think we should just get monster trucks. And uh, funny enough, two years later, they got monster trucks. So I think that's where we need to go. I think it needs to be something spectacle, so and nice and loud. So for the kids. bring in the big toys. Exactly. So and I think that will bring the crowds as well. So Mel Barclay, and I'm from Gore. I've just joined Mel in the members' luncheon area, and we're having a lovely bit of lunch. We've just completed the Claire Show personality contest, and Annabelle, her great-granddaughter, won the tiny top section, and you are obviously very proud. Oh, yes. It was very lovely to see her up there, and it was such a surprise because I didn't know it was happening. <laughs> but she was very brave. <laughs> How old is Annabelle? Annabelle's four. 
You've come all the way from Goolwa. Have you come just for the show? Yes, and we're going to stay overnight. And Annabelle thinks it's lovely because we're having a sleepover. Hi, I'm Sophie Thompson, and I'm a gardening presenter on ABC TV and a, a local gardener. And thank you so much for being here today and opening The Clare Show. I mean, is this the first time you've been to The Clare Show? It's the first time I've been to The Clare Show, but I've certainly been up to The Clare Showgrounds a number of times for the Autumn Festival. But, you know, this is about bringing gardening to The Clare Show, so I'm excited to be here for the first time. So what has been the take-up from what you saw today? Well, we had great numbers. Um, we, there was both Kim Cyrus um, from Indoors Outdoors and myself, and we were talking gardening down here in the Gardening Hub. And having a taste of the... Um, SA Autumn Garden Festival here at the Clare Show seems to work really well. So looking ahead, I'm sure gardening will remain part of the Clare Show and, you know, it gives people a, such a great mixed day out. Are, are you finding that more country shows are going down this, this track of trying to incorporate gardening into their shows? COVID has really been tricky um, and so I would say I think, you know, of the 11 northern um, shows uh, in the South Australian Country Show Network, only a couple have gone ahead in the last couple of years. So first off, I should say, good on Clare Show for committing to it because it's a big task. But I think most shows, most rural shows now have got a gardening section. Now, sometimes, for example, Murray Bridge, um, they have gardening speakers, but they also have the local garden club there. So, you know, it's about, um, and so you can buy plants and there's not only plant retailers and nurseries, but you can talk to garden club members on what you should grow. And here, there's a great range of um, local nurseries um, and people that have plants that are appropriate to this area. So considering it was such a success this year, do you think you'll be back in future years? If I get invited, <laughs> I'll definitely be back. I love the Clare Valley. I mean, it's such a, you know, we've had a beautiful spring and it's been milder than normal. And, and I, as I look out and see the beautiful trees and the green grass, you know, everything's so verdant and beautiful. Absolutely, I'll be back. And I'm also back in autumn too for the um, Autumn Garden Show, which is, is run in association with the Clare Showgrounds. Sophie Thompson, ABC presenter on Gardening Australia, who also opened the Clare Show. I hope you enjoyed the first Clare Valley podcast. Please share this podcast with friends and family. Also, please rate and review if you're listening via Apple Podcasts. We would love to receive your feedback. This podcast is brought to you by the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. Catch you next time.